Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Weekend Sportscast. With apologies for the slight delay, uh, we're speaking to you from, well, a glittering hotel room in the 26th floor of a slightly anonymous hotel in Shanghai, uh, because it's the FIWC is back on the road. And because of the unique way in which the internet works in uh, China, or doesn't, uh, that means that uh, un- we're unable to get a kind of stable line in to uh, my partner in crime and grime, uh, Marshall Pruitt. So it's going to be uh, me joined once again by my partner in DSC and race.com crimes, Stephen Kilby. Stephen, good evening. Good evening, Graham. I'm sorry for the downgrade. Uh, yeah, I think you should be too. Uh, before we get into into uh, the questions, of course, we should say, of course, as we always do, thank you very much indeed to our good friends at Cooper Tyres and to the fine people of the Justice Brothers for their continued support for the Weekend Sports Cars and all the other good things brought to you by the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. But this show is all about your questions, your questions about IMSA, about the world of ACO racing, and about just about anything else that uh, that, that, that crosses your mind to do with endurance and sports kind of racing. And, well, Stephen, you're going to act as Inquisitor, the Grand Inquisitor, the very Grand Inquisitor. Start asking those questions. Yeah, let's start off uh, with the IMSA section. We've got TF100B uh, saying, with Kyle Busch running in an AVS Lexus at the Daytona 24 Hours next year, do you think his fan base... Uh, will show a real interest in IMSA and do you think they'll do something like live stream from the AVS cars because of his popularity during the race? I'm sure they'll work very hard to um, to unlock the potential fan base there. Uh, quite whether or not we're going to see hundreds of thousands of people turning up, yee-hawing their way uh, up and down the interstate I, I don't know is the honest answer. We have seen some big fan bases follow some big names from NASCAR from IndyCar, Formula 1 for that matter the Rolex 24 Hours. It's one of my favourite parts of that event. Uh, it is one of those what's well, kind of all-star event, isn't it? I know you, you know, you've been along with me for a number of years now, Stephen. What do you reckon? Yeah, it, it, I remember when Jeff Gordon raced with Wayne Taylor Racing, uh, walking around the campsites in the infield and certainly seeing some Jeff Gordon flags. The big NASCAR stars are a big deal in that part of the world. They really are. They are household names for for a lot of people in South America particularly. Do you think Jeff went out and gave those flags out? He he might have done, but you know. You hadn't thought of that, had you? Uh, no, to be fair, I hadn't. Didn't um was it did it was it Dale Earnhardt or Dale Earnhardt Jr. drove for Corvette? Was that the Rolex twenty four? They did the Rolex twenty four, nearly won. And did you go? No, it was a little there was the year before I first went. Uh but I'm sure that was ram chock full mm. of uh Intimidator fans, but it's you know it, it it is definitely one of the unique parts of that event, and it's the only weekend where there isn't a NASCAR race in the year, <laughs> <laughs> a NASCAR race or people recovering from a NASCAR race. But uh, yeah, I hope they do. I think people are smart enough that if you can invest in putting one of your hot properties in a race car, there's usually a reason beyond just their pace if they've got a name as well. Quite whether or not we'll see live streaming, that comes down to actually what they're allowed to do, of course. Uh, if they're going to do that, they're going to have to pay the bill for it uh, because the rights holders are elsewhere. But I'm sure we will be hearing more. 
Next up is Ice Coffee. It says, For me, the car count is a major factor in the entertainment value of the Rolex 24 Hours, the Subing 12 Hours, and Petit Le Mans. And with car counts looking like they're going to be lower than in the past next year, what would you say I should be trying to look forward to to get excited about the next IMSA season? Sebring. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the answer is I do expect we're going to see car counts down probably throughout the season. It's been some good news. I think some more good news to come about uh, LMP2, for instance. Uh, but no denying it, uh, we're going to have a bit of a reshuffle in the Daytona prototype uh, international um, category. But certainly I think numbers are going to be a little bit down for the full season. GTLM we know is going to be down for the full season. GTD we don't really know yet. There's some movements I think still to come. Um, it is, however, undoubtedly the fourth category without a shadow of a doubt. People would argue about maybe LMP2 being seen in that way. But GTD reason for concern certainly towards the end of the year and with a number of teams still yet to kind of make it clear what they're going to be doing I think we're going to be seeing uh, more teams actually declaring some returning teams without a shadow of a doubt whether or not we'll see any outcome from SRO's uh, decision it won't be a number a huge number of cars but it doesn't take a huge number to make a bit of a new story whether or not we'll see some people moving over from um, Blompon World America Challenge whatever they're calling it this week series Pirelli (laughs) Um, thing, uh, whether we'll see that uh, either for one-offs, two-offs, four-offs, or indeed full-season offs, um, we'll wait and see. But what should you be looking for? Close competition. That, that's the reality. The reality is that we, you know, we, we all moan and groan, and I'm amongst them. You know, when you lose a big team or two big teams, but look for the close competition. Look for where. IMSA, I hope next year, get it right, where, frankly, this last 12 months, they've got it wrong, and that was balanced performance. I think they've given themselves a bit of a talking to about that, and I think what you're going to see are classes that are pretty closely competitive. And that, for me, can overcome some of the short-term concerns about car count. I think there's two things to be... Uh, excited about one is the Corvette CL. It's a new Corvette, yeah. Doesn't happen very often, doesn't. And there's going to be plenty of people looking to see what that's like. And two is, I think Mazda's going to be more competitive at the big races like Sebring and Daytona. They've broken their duck, haven't they? They've got some wins. Daytona hasn't been kind to them, and they're nope. going to keep their eye on making sure that they can do well in that one. We'll see. I hope so because it's an effort that you know we we know deserves. Um, to see some success but uh, there's big competition out there and the caddies have always proved to be a bit of a juggernaut of the long races next up is Blueby Job he says Good name. there's lots of talk about different series combining for a double header weekend i.e. IndyCar and NASCAR what about IMSA and Trans Am I think it would be great especially for the Trans Am series they're, com- they're not com- uh, in competing sports car series like IMSA and SRO are. It's pie in the sky, but I think a combined GT race at VR with IMSA and Trans Am on track at the same time would be carnage, and it would be awesome. Uh, I think it would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? It very much is the kind of more old-school American uh, sports car racing, the kind of tube frame, big banger cars, and there's a lot to like about that. I know in the conversations we've had on the show before with Marshall, uh, he's still got uh, you know an awful lot of goodwill towards that. I'm looking forward to actually seeing Chris Dyson at Bahrain uh, in December to find out uh, his perspective on Trans Am as someone still competing for the championship this year and that monster Mustang he's got. Um, yeah, why not? Is I think a straight and honest answer. It wasn't all that long ago when we used to have, well, effectively, World Challenge on the Sebring, um, uh, on the Sebring Bill, and I always look forward to those races. 
uh, always looked forward to whether or not it was the bonkers, you know, uh, Volvos or whether or not it was the early Cadillacs that always felt looked like they were kind of mid-drive by shooting. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things to look forward to. I think whenever you get the Gathering of the Clans, uh, it's usually a good thing. And maybe if you were to ask me to kind of wave my magic wand over motorsport, I'd like to see a bit more of that. Um, whether or not it's someone like Trans Am that's not got, you know, a major kind of um, business clash with IMSA or with anybody else, or whether it's those that do. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, we talked a lot about the Indianapolis race, and I know we're going to talk about Indianapolis a little later in the show. Um, for the Intercontinental GT Challenge, the SRO pro- uh, product, that doesn't work. There's precious few places that Stefan Mattel can take that in North America. My view is, if it doesn't work, he really needs to sit down with IMSA and see whether or not there's actually a deal to be done about a double header there. Lots of people had a real downer on Sebring about IMSA and the WEC, and it's fair to say that that was nothing other than unmitigated triumph. Mm. I must admit, I've never actually seen a Trans Am race on TV or in person, have you been to one? I've not been. Uh, actually, I have seen Trans Am race. Saw one at Road Atlanta one year. Are they cool? Oh, they're way cool. Yeah, I bet they're cool. la- loud, really loud. No, they're, 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 they're whisper quiet. So it's like electric. Yeah, it's like it Formula E. It's like Formula E. Formula yes. Extreme. Imagine Formula E with forty-two heavy metal bands going round on two hundred mile an hour trucks, and that's about it. That sounds great. Yes. Let's move on with a question from Stephen Olif. He says, who gets on the phone with the captain first regarding bringing sports cars back to Indy? Is it IMSA or the WC? And who is more? Who is Roger more likely to reply to you first? Well, WC, of course, have had a look at it before now. Um, the I think there's a bit of a difference of opinion as to who should be paying who to go there. <laughs> but um, North America at the moment, it's probably not at the top of their agenda because they've now got something they believe, and I think they're right, can be a longer-term success at Sebring. Let's wait and see what comes out of the of the wash for year two, that difficult second album. But um, who gets on the phone to them? Well, maybe IMSA will take a look at it. Maybe they'll take a look at it. that long ago. IMSA last raced at Indy, uh, was it? Was it IMSA? Was it D- DP specs? Did they race Did they? With, um, like, the Corvette DPs? Did they? I mean... Just to have a recollection of it being Grand that long did. ago. Okay, maybe it was a bit longer than I can remember. Um, but. but no, I think I think the answer is it's going to be interesting to see what his priorities are. Uh, and again, I know we're going to be talking about IMSA and potential twenty-four hour races, etc. And you know, actually, in the next question, there you go. Well, so let's ask that next question and roll it in then. Yeah, Mike Hogg says. Uh, we, uh, Marshall, well, unfortunately, he's not here. Because with Penske's well, wish, not here. But he's not. He's definitely not here. Is uh, Penske's wish for a 24-hour race at the Brick Card aimed at IMSA or some other brand of sports cars? I don't really care. I mean, whether or not it's Cravontic, whether or not it's uh, IGTC making a bid for maybe a North American um, race there. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's an awful lot. A lot of things about Roger Penske doesn't tend to make many wrong moves in business. And I think if they do make a move in that direction, he'll have done his sums. He'll He'll have understood you know, the whys, the wherefores, the maybes. And he won't be spending a lot of his own money doing it. So I think the the answer is, if you do see a 24-hour race prospect coming for the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, is likely to have understood where the the pros, cons, the risks, and whether or not this is going to be a short or medium-term risk at that. So, look, it'll be great to see it. I like 24-hour racing. Um, It'd be great to see it. It doesn't necessarily course have to be something where the captain's expecting 80 100 150 000 people to come 
nothing wrong with participation motorsport and he's now got a property there's a massive massive draw for perhaps some of the smaller sanctioning bodies i'm sure once this podcast goes out we'll already seen a, a, a podcast on uh, from marshall Pruitt on indycar answering questions about penske's huge seismic deal that uh, gets him in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar and IMS Productions but what's your 10 cents on the ground do you think it's uh, it can only be positive right I, it's, look, for my money if you've got someone who's prepared to invest in a major motorsport venue the properties that go with that venue uh, with the uh, with a uh, with cards in the game in the racing that takes place there I think you go have to go a long way to not saying that's potentially a good thing for the future of the sports with, well, let's face it, an internationally renowned venue. It's, it is, you know, the Indy 500 is one of the, arguably the most famous race event in the world. There are very, very few that come even remotely close to it. And for the likes of Roger Penske, whether or not he's your cup of tea or is not, the reality is he's got heritage in this, this crazy business of motorsports for almost the whole of his professional life. <laughs> His heart's in the right place, this one, isn't it? It's He's just got the top it, of his chest on the left hand side. It? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, but look, I'd rather it was that than a Johnny Come Lately uh, with a brave idea about blah, 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 branding, blah, 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 return on investment, blah, 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 floppy head, blah, 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 social media, blah, 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 influences. He's a more traditional businessman. And I think in, in this day and age, the fewer risks, the better here. If you're going to invest, invest in a property you know that's actually got potential to pay you back. I'm delighted Penske's involved in it. Um, you know, it would be interesting to find out who else might have been at some point. But um, the proof of the pudding will indeed be in the eating of that said pudding. <laughs> and uh, I cannot see making a failure of this. Mm. Quick fire question. Ten years' time, what do you think will be the most positive deal or, or big change Liberty taking over F1 or Penske taking over IndyCar uh, Liberty giving up F1 um, and handing it over to somebody else now, I think the, the answer is um, Liberty have got some major challenges ahead in terms of the future business structure of Formula 1 that's still to come there, there's big challenges that are as yet unpublicised and, and I'm not saying unknown they're pretty well widely known uh, with Roger Penske um, I I can't see that being anything other than a really positive turn for them. Um, Liberty, I think, have made some positive changes, but they've got bigger challenges ahead than Rogers got with IMS. Mm, they've had to dig themselves out a bit more holes. Than I think they, they have, have and lots more to come to do. Dennis uh, Sozak says, The Michelin Encore at Sebring, there's only 18 entries this year. Is this event really necessary going forward? Aren't most teams getting ready for the upcoming season um, and therefore not having the time and, and finances to compete in a non-points race? Um, look, opportunity to test, never a bad thing. If you want to add some competition onto that, a little bit of sparkle, a little bit of OEM, in this case, Michelin Sparkle, to some of the teams that maybe wouldn't get as much publicity on a regular IMSA weekend. I've no particular problem with that. But let's not make it something that it's not. It's not going to be a very top-line um, IMSA event. Uh, what it's going to be is an opportunity for testing. It's going to be an opportunity for a little bit of branding and a little bit of peripheral and additional publicity for everybody involved. Nothing wrong with that. We will come on, I know, later in the show to talk about uh, some, uh, at least one other event that I regard in the same kind of vein. Um, you've heard me before on the show talk about the difference between promotable motorsports 
and participation motorsport. This, this is somewhere in between. It's, there's a particular purpose for the brand, uh, but it's not going to be something that's going to have, you know, the race organisers for the Sebring 12 Hours or uh, the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona sweating under the collar, uh, getting hot under the collar about uh, the, their, their, um, the glamour of their event being undermined. Nothing wrong with it. Can't get that excited about it. Yeah, I mean, you can't always expect there to be huge numbers of cars turning up no. somewhere like this, but there's always value in track time at a place like that. Absolutely. Sebring. Good luck to the ones that ones who go. Hope it goes well. Hope you have a safe weekend. We're moving on to Weck, Elms, Aslums and Akko. Wow. Yeah, here we go. We're going to start with Sad Boys 2, who's decided to ask the longest question of all time. Are you ready for the longest question of all time, Graham? I hope so. <laughs> Remember, we're in China, so the airtime is very, very, very expensive. Yeah. Once upon a time, he starts with. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> so, in last week's podcast, there was discussion of a vote to be held to choose the name of Hypercar. Is it not going to be called Hypercar? This is the first time I've heard of this, so more info would be much uh, appreciated. Also, I've not been too into American sports cars until this last year, having mostly been into the WC for the last decade or so. I was under the impression that there was somewhat acrimonious relationships between the American sports car series and the FI and ACO, and it always seemed to me like it was due to the European side of things being too unwilling to budge from their own position when it came to trying to work together. Is this accurate? If so, where does this play hard to get come from? It seems to me like if two series wants to run want to run their cars side by side and together, especially when discussing future formulas, it shouldn't be that difficult. Although it took DTM and Super GT something like a decade to do this. Uh, that is, is that the end or is it more? No, that's only the start. Do you want the rest? Of no, no. no. <laughs> so, okay. Um, was there acrimony? Yes. Has there been constructive discussion before? And after, yes. What were the reasons behind it? I think unhealthy doses of unrealistic and unenlightened self-interest on the part of a number of individuals. And no, I don't believe it was just on one side of the debate. The reality is, it is always difficult when you've got a well-established product, when you've got two partners, as IMSA and uh, ACO slash LMEM, are in a number of regards uh, when it comes down to giving up a little bit of influence giving up a little bit of positive when your partner's on a bit of a negative uh, and that takes I think brave people to put the potential gains aside but I think that's exactly where we are now I think where we are now is I think that more people than before recognise that at the top end of the debate there are really very difficult moments uh, very difficult decisions to be taken and at some point we've got to hope that the people at the top of the shop and I'm looking at you John Doonan and the team at IMSA and I'm looking at you Pierre Fion and Gerard Naveau and the people at the top of the ACO and LMEM who run the WEC um, to put aside a potential minor percentage gain in some regards to give a little and to work together to find bigger percentage gains in the next two, three, five, ten years. Better times are coming um, for the top classes of both championships. Uh, WC, we're not, not quite at a low ebb in terms of LMP1, but it's not doing remarkably well in terms of numbers. We've got Hypercar to come. Um, my reckoning at the moment, if everything we think we know is around, we're going to be roughly, in terms of the numbers of hypercars, at year one, at some point in year one, that we are currently going to see 
in DPI in 2020. So just under or around double figures. Same applies for IMSA. It is not a straightforward position at the moment with IMSA. We know that there are new manufacturers looking to come, but we shouldn't assume that the current manufacturers are all going to stay. Um, and there are difficult decisions to be made there too. There are potential gains and potential losses from the choices that are made. It is a time for bravery and professionalism. That professionalism has got to show itself in looking not for the short-term gain, but for the potential that might come midway through and towards the end of a real cycle. And by thinking where we might be at the outset of that real cycle and whether or not we've got another chance to get it right. Let's not forget when we're discussing things like relationships between America and, and you know global global sanctioning bodies that it's not just their priorities that can be sticking points. It can also be manufacturers and teams that race on either side. I mean, the difference in what an American manufacturer or an American based representative of a manufacturer wants out of a championship and wants out of a rule set to somebody who wants to go and sell cars globally. Well, that's the point, you see. At the moment, where where the difficulty is, is you've got the ACOWEC. It's a global championship. Therefore, you're looking at budgets being garnered from not just uh, an OEM in its home marketplace, let's say Germany for BMW, for instance, but trying to activate that across a global network of importers. That's a bigger task to get that right than it would be for... Um, DPI for instance where you're dealing with manufacturers, importers the OEMs in a single albeit massive continental marketplace where it's now getting sticky is when you get to the likes of Ford, we know we've heard McLaren too, that's a slightly different scale of course, but that they're now looking to see whether or not there's an opportunity to leverage the influence they've got in bringing a new programme or not to, to leverage the potential to get something on a global scale. It's an incredibly difficult thing to achieve. We've said it before, we'll keep saying it. It does appear that we're getting to a kind of high water mark again at the moment in terms of the positivity of those discussions and its potential. We just need to be patient and wait and see how the outturn comes. Before we move on, Sabois, to also mention that you really hope that at some point you'd hear from me again on the podcast. Your, your prayers have been answered, mate. I'm back, I'm better than ever. Marshall should not necessarily be worried, but all I'm saying, Graham, is there is a fan base building for me. You never thought you'd say that, did you? I never thought I'd hear it. <laughs> a fan base, the Stephen Kilby fan club. Of one. But oh, there is one. There's one, okay. So How many will... fans do you need for a club? We well, there's only one to hold the club. <laughs> but uh, we'll we'll obviously be offering a wide range of potential merchandise for Stephen Kilby on the, on the Week in Sports Cars, and I'll be getting onto that at some point in the next decade. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that is going to bring in the big bucks. Grim Brother One has decided to not go with the longest question ever, but with the most questions ever. Oh, He's really? asked one, two, three, four, five, seven questions. So I you, think that's not all of them. I think one, two, three, four, five, seven. You've missed. Was there, was there a sixth? There was a sixth. You're not, you're not as good at this as Eduardo Freitas is, are you? I, I can't count. No. I can't read, I can't count. Go for it in a fairly rapid fire order. <clears throat> His first question is I feel like. Uh, the, the champion Audis, Golf Racing, uh, Norica Peugeots are some of the last true factory customer programs, more in akin to what we saw in the 956-962 era. Do you think that a large part of this waning scenario is the natural byproduct of the increased technology and investment? Uh, yes and no. I uh, don't think you're right. We've got DPI, of course. We've, we have got a number of, uh, of um, customer cars in a top level of sports cars. That can't and shouldn't be ignored. 
Uh, don't forget either the investment that the privateers have to make in customer GTE programmes uh, in the WEC. There's lots of those that, are, frankly, are not a different, not a very much different uh, level than you might have been looking at for an LMP1 not that long ago. And the final thing to say is there's a new era of this coming. Remember. Uh, we already know there's going to be customer hypercars for the Valkyrie, the Aston Martin Valkyrie with our motorsport. So not quite dead. Get your points, certainly. Uh, it'd be an interesting... I think the other thing as well is lots of large-ish professional motorsport organisations have now got, certainly in the global regard, also in the um, European side of the continental divide as well, have got the opportunity to do LMP2 and have some remarkably good runs there and with a customer base that doesn't necessarily rely on having to find the sponsorship uh, in an era where you've got a widespread pro-am formula the market has changed and i think that's the biggest thing biggest thing pro-am has absolutely changed the marketplace in top level sports car racing how feasible do you think it might be for toyota to catch ferrari or audi in the total of 24 hour wins uh, it'll take uh, commitment beyond the next stage, won't it? So two at the moment. Um, we've got the hypercars still to come, of course. That's probably a three to five year uh, cycle before we get into zero emissions. And then you get into zero emissions. If that goes the way that the ACO are hoping it's going to go, um, then you know what? We've seen manufacturers come through a new rules cycle, new technology cycles and dominate. Um, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Uh, there is one uh, record which I think is beginning to look as if it's inevitably going to go, and that's the tyre manufacturer winning at Le Mans mm. with, with uh, hypercar going the way of Michelin. Uh, that's a bit of a gift to them. It was already a bit of an open goal because, of course, Dunlop currently hold that record. Uh, Dunlop will be no more uh, next year, certainly for the time being at Le Mans 24 Hours and it doesn't look as if Goodyear are going to be in a position to have a good year uh, at Le Mans for the foreseeable future. Unless a P2 wins overall. Unless a P2 wins overall, and they've got that contract. So that's the one I think that is most likely to go. It's Michelin and the Thai manufacturer. But uh, Toyota, they've got... Well, um, they've got to win it next year, for starters. You've then got a hypercar. You've then got to see what they come up with in a zero-emissions era. When might we see a serious Chinese OEM effort at the Le Mans 24 Hours? Now, I asked this question to David Cheng at the prologue last year, and he said he was working on it. I haven't heard anything since then about any progress of that, but I think at some point, surely got to see a big Asian manufacturer like Hyundai or, or some yeah. of the Chinese ones like... I don't know, who, who's bigger? By Your Dreams. Yeah, By yeah. Your Dreams, P1 programme. P1, don't think so. A bit gaudy, probably. Um, Roveway. But Roveway, why not the Rover? Rover and P1, dear me. <laughs> um, the reality is, it, it's, I'm old enough, yes, I'm that old, to remember when an awful lot of traditionalists in uh, Europe laughed at Japanese manufacturers, and they did. This was the one that the bloke down your road that had the, the job that required a night shift bought himself a little Datsun 120Y because that got him to and from his job reliably without the car breaking down on him in the wet or cold weather. No one's laughing now, I think is the answer there. So the answer is, the inevitability is that I think you're going to see some emerging forces in it. Um, we've already seen some niche manufacturers have a bit of a crack at international motorsport, Alpine's 
you know, one of the more recent ones, Aris as well. You know, yes, they are branding exercises, but they're there. And there's activation coming on. And I know you're been, you've been working this week on some stuff about Aris and about where that actually might, might uh, take things. So the answer, I think, is, am I aware of anything immediately? No. Do I think we're likely to see something from Southeast Asia that we've not so far seen at the top level? Yeah, I do. I think we might see South Korea first, uh, but I don't believe we're going to see China too far behind. There's a huge, you know, we're here in People's Republic of China. There's a huge amount of pride and ambition here. Now, you've been coming here for how many years? This is my third or fourth. Okay. And you tell me, how many changes have you seen in three years? Enormous change. From the cars people drive, to the amount of buildings, to the level of buildings. Yep. Um, and for that matter, to the standard of the road cars we're seeing. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's domestic production as well as the imports, or by imports, they're all, almost all actually built here, apart from the really, really top-end stuff. But the reality is there is no shortage of ambition. Has that been delayed by a bit of an economic slowdown here? Yes. But make no mistake, uh, China knows that if they're going to be truly successful economically, that means they've got to be operating on a wholly different scale than just even this enormous marketplace. And that requires standing out. And traditionally, that's been more easy to achieve through marketing and competition. So let's wait and see. One of the best examples of the way things are developing over here, I think, came from you told me the first time I came, which was when we were standing in the media centre looking out of the panoramic uh, view of the circuit. And you said the first time we came here, the massive skyline wasn't there. It wasn't. It was a long way away. And now it's almost... It was the, the you track. can't see anything. You it's can't. so... As far as I can see, it's 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 like skyscraper, yeah. uh, skyscrapers. It's tall, high-rise buildings, mainly for people living here. Mm. In what is a the, the part of Shanghai we're in is the part of Shanghai where most of the major automotive plants are, and they are enormous, absolutely enormous, enormous on a terrifying scale for some traditional Western manufacturers. And once that economic power starts to shift its focus in a different direction into niche marketplaces that's a point at which people should start to worry but I tell you right now if you're sitting there and listening to this and thinking Chinese manufacturers don't laugh because trust me um, when that starts to move in a direction of performance and endurance there's going to be something pretty big and pretty special let's say Glickenhaus wins Le Mans with an Alpha engine hypercar would that add to Alpha Romeo's Le Mans total or not because it's just an engine supplier mm. would it be too not too dissimilar to Porsche's the Porsche wins of 96 and 97 it's an odd one uh, because in some instances you'll hear the TWR WSC 95s and 96 97 cars mentioned as Porsches you seldom hear the McLaren mentions the BMW from 95 mm. so it's going to be an interesting one to see how history records it my view is it's a clicking house it's as simple as that chassis first uh, it's a Glickenhaus uh, so it'd be badged as a Glickenhaus it may be eventually badged as a Glickenhaus Alfa Romeo if indeed uh, that all comes together and happens in that way as I, I believe that Jim Glickenhaus uh, intends it to but if that car comes out and is looking very competitive indeed if I was an Alfa Romeo marketeer I think I'd be on the phone to Jim and Jesse and having a bit of a debate about what we might do at the end of that year when the car races for the first time that I'm on 24 hours hmm I've been going back and rewatching older iterations of the Le Mans 24 Hours and pondering the difference between how the selection process used to be with um, what we have now with invitations as opposed to pre-qualification requirements, more earned auto entries rather than 
uh, yeah, well, more more earned auto entries right now. Do you have a preference now versus then in how the cars are selected for the big race in variety versus quality? Um, I've always loved the variety. It's what attracted me to the Mon in the first place. I happen to think that the auto entries process is pretty okay. You've got to look at it this way. How many of the teams that have earned an auto entry wouldn't be going anyway? Yeah. And it's a very small number, really. You are talking about uh, teams that are earning their opportunities by operating at a very, very high level. You have to look really at the kind of the pro-am or the am uh, winners uh, to see the areas where people get into that debate. But the reality is those, um, those auto entries are pre-publicised and pre-publicised very early. To a degree, everybody's got the same opportunities. I would like to see an opportunity when it comes down to the, the push and shove of who are going to make up the last few to maybe see a little bit of competitive edge to it. Maybe there's a way in which you could actually have something at the test day that you can earn there. Maybe not ultimately a place, but something within that uh, placing system. I'd like to see a competitive element back into it. Some of the stories... You know uh, what was happening in the um, in the pre-qualification days were, were Legion, Andy Wallace, and the uh, rapidly failing Panars managing to get through with a cough and a splutter across the line and knocking out other cars. The history doesn't necessarily recall the ones that didn't make it. It, make, it remembers the heroes that did. And test day of late for me, it's been a bit of a damp squib. I'll be honest with you, and I'd like to see something within Test Day um, for those teams to achieve. Go away with a bit of a headline. I'm not quite sure what. I'm not quite sure whether or not that means some kind of, um, of preference in running order or whatever that might be, but I'd like to see something coming out for, for Test Day to be to have an element of competition at the very least. Here's an idea, okay? This is, a, this is me riffing. At Test Day... Instead of having two Road to Le Mans races in Le Mans week, you have one. The other Road to Le Mans race happens on the test day with all the cars in P3 from Le Mans Cup. And because Le Mans Cup don't get an automatic entry in LMP3 for winning the championship, you do a race at Le Mans on the test day. The winner of that race gets to come back for Le Mans with a car that's already pre-prepared a and drive. In P2. What, like a Ligier P2? Yeah. Oh. That's quite cool, right? I'd quite like that. I think that's that's quite a neat one. So, uh, your um, if you like uh, Stephen's idea, send your postcards to uh, Pierre Fion, care of the Circuit du Twenty Four Catalogneur, and put on there. Stephen told me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> GT One. Will we ever see a proper GT One class again? Or while the cars like the Aston Martin Vulcan, the Pagani Sondra, or the McLaren. A P1 slash Senna GTR certainly fit into the spirit of the class name. It seems what a waste and a shame not to see them race properly in anger versus what SRO is talking about with implementing them in the near future of more like a, a mobile auto show than real motorsport. I think the problem is that you're talking about private money. Um, I think actually success or otherwise of Hypercar will indicate whether or not there's any potential for that at all because that is going to be a factory funded um, effectively that kind of level of technology they can make a success of it if you know in year two you suddenly find that we're you know got an embarrassment of riches then maybe but you know it does seem as if the time has gone for those fantastic cars and they were the cars that you know first lit my sports car fire without a shadow of a doubt 
but once technology started to get rolling and the, the OEMs got their their dander up and the opportunities became it, it killed it in a year or two. It, it killed it stone dead. It, the the arms race became, you know, a critical mass very very quickly. I hope not. I hope there's a there's a place for them. We have seen, of course, Aston Martin Vulcans racing, um, and mm. we've seen them racing at Le Mans for that matter mm. um, in the support races. And maybe that's where you might want to be looking at things in the future. Is in some way something that's maybe less serious, maybe less uh, less of the Titanic season long budgets, and maybe a race for some of the specials once or twice a year. And I'd be delighted to see those kind of cars running around the. Uh, the circuit at Le Mans um, as they probably should be but the reality is very few people can afford to run them moving on to Hieronymus now he says cheers cheers to you probably done now <laughs> is there any news regarding the appeal of Inter-Europol for the last race of the ELMS championship I think you should probably explain exactly what he's talking about there before we go any further we should so this is Inter-Europol who um, across the line at the end of the final race of the European Le Mans series won the championship and indeed the automatic entry to Le Mans in LMP2 that went with that post-race though there's something of a disagreement between the stewards of the meeting and the team about the interpretation of driver time that resulted from a near one hour delay under red flag Uh, the race organisers were pretty clear that they felt they'd been clear Uh, into Europol believed that the the basic regulations have missed a major uh, trick they think they're right they think that an interpretation about what driver time should have been done by Martin Hipper their silver ranked driver is incorrect and they are prepared to try their hand uh, effectively in the motorsport courts so the answer is when will we find out well before February because that's when that uh, that question of the uh, automatic entry will need to be finally decided either way there's going to be a disappointed team it's either going to be into Europol or it's going to be your international there was a lot of confusion in that red flag at Portimao there was and I think it's fair to say that the document that made its way to the teams frankly could have been better uh, it was sent to me in the in the commentary booth and I was struggling with it um, let's wait and see I, I, I've listened to both sides uh, I've heard a lot of people tell me it, it was very clear what it was meant to say. There's a difference between what it was meant to say and what it actually said. And there's also a difference in interpretation between the source document that it relates to. We are not talking about a bunch of country bumpkins here. We're talking about a team that has won championships in LMP3. They know their stuff. They've got experienced engineers. They've got experienced people around the rule books. And they will have had a very solid reason for believing what they did. They were not the only ones to be confused by that note. Let's wait and see what emerges. Either way, it's regretful that a team, either that team or your international, that at some point will have believed that they won that championship and the final analysis will have not have won it. Hmm. It wouldn't be an ELMS race for our post-race penalty. No, Graham. No. <coughs> he also asks about the WC this weekend, and this is... This question is made a lot better by the fact that we've already seen some track action. He yep. says, with the uh, success handicaps being applied for the Toyotas here, do you think we'll see something resembling a close race in P1? Uh, possibly, uh, certainly for a time. In terms of uh, pure lap speed, they're pretty close. I mean, but we have not seen a Toyota lead a session so far. We're recording this, well, in fact, very early on Saturday morning now. Um, and the two sessions so far have been led by Rebellion and then by Ginetta. Um, and they're quick. 
The other, the real surprise to me, though, Stephen, is not just that we've got the closeness between the LMP1 privateers and the LMP1 hybrid. It's the speed of the quickest of the LMP2s, which are right up there. And in fact, we're quicker than a Toto this morning. Uh, briefly, yeah. In uh, in FP1, there was indeed a, a P2 that finished. I think it was Nicola Lapierre in the Cool Racing Orica finished up. Head of one of the Toyotas, he did indeed. So I think you know there's potential there. Ultimately, in terms of the way the power delivery is actually um, is actually done, you must apologise. My phone is ringing in the background. I'm just getting rid of it. Um, in terms of the the way in which the Toyotas deliver their power, we do think that when we get into kind of closer running with traffic, they do have an inherent advantage there. No doubt that this performance. Um, handicap that's been doled out to them is beginning to have a pretty serious effect we'll wait and see um, You know, do I think it's impossible for them to win? Of course it's not impossible for them to win, they have the most advanced the quickest and for that matter by the look of it the most reliable car, that's been a, an area where there's been real downsides to the privateers thus far we'll wait and see, I'm looking forward to the potential for a little bit of well, nip and tuck in the opening stage of this race at the very least let's hope so that's what it's designed to do mm. George Buda says with possible technical gremlins for the new car car slash hypercars in the first few races of next season do you think there's a possibility of the grandfathered private P1s to win some races or even fight for the championship yes and I think that's what the likes of Lawrence Tomlinson is certainly thinking about I think that's absolutely where Lawrence is uh, is aiming for uh, with you know, he's, he's underlined his commitment to the great race in June next year. I think he's looking. He's made it very clear. He'd, he'd be he's at the moment working towards potentially a third Ginetta for Le Mans, and he's certainly thinking very positively towards uh, an entrant, uh, entry into the WEC with a grandfathered version of the car that we've currently got. Quite what they'll do to grandfather it, whether or not it will be competitive with a new hypercar, I think is open to debate. But he's absolutely gambling on the fact that by then he'll have the reliability of the Ginetta AER as nailed down as he possibly can have it. And that, that will be a very strong suit against hypercars, which, let's be blunt, will be very, very new indeed. There has seldom been a rule cycle where we're going to see have seen the proportion of the top class delivered to their race teams and delivered onto the track so soon, so close to the start of a competitive season and in particular a competitive season where after uh, the opening race of that season if indeed it's still in, in uh, Silverstone in, um, in Europe they're going to be in a container and not able to be easily dealt with back at base Do you think this is going to resemble what we saw in 2012 with Audi and Toyota coming in with a you know, a, an effort that was perhaps a little bit more rushed than it than it than it should have been. Well, we we saw it with the final year of Audi, where they they. I, I don't want to use words like rushed and panicked, but certainly that was a car that that needed a lot more development. The final year Audi, there's no doubt the pace, the potential in that car. It was an absolute rocket ship, but it wasn't what we'd expect uh, uh, by then to see from an Audi, which is a nailed down, reliable package. It simply wasn't, and that lost in that championship without a shadow of a doubt. I think we might see something similar and it might well be something that we've not got used to we've got used to not seeing for a long time which is a championship decided not just on pace but on reliability and that's got some appeal I'll be honest with you it's got some appeal that we might start to see some real shockers coming out in the season and particularly early on in the season 
I can't remember that far back, but when Toyota ran partially in the WC with one car, was that because they were spending time developing the other car and testing it? The, the, the reality with the 2012 car was that came in, that was never supposed to be entered in 2012. That was the year that was supposed to be Audi versus Persia, of course. Persia pulled out with just weeks before the start of a brand new world championship, and Toyota were persuaded, and bless them for it, we've got short memories haven't we that that car which was never the race car that was a development car was going to step up and do as big a part of the world championships as they could and they ran every race from them on onwards with the single car so the reality was that was a car that was designed to test it wasn't a car that was designed to race and we saw that later in the year for instance at uh, Bahrain where the car I think had some contact um, had a non-operational number panel the eliminated number panel it took them half an hour to change that side pod because it simply wasn't designed as a racing part mm. so the reality I think here is we'll, we're more likely than any other point to see a higher proportion of the top class of cars operating at something less than the optimum in terms of reliability James Hewitt says we've heard of prospective customers coming forward for free of the four LMP3 constructors for 2020 is there any news on the ground regarding customers for a death? Yeah, I, I've been a bit um, remiss post-Portimao with all sorts of other things going on of not uh, put, putting uh, together the pretty massive amount of work that we, you and I have both done on LMP3 and all four manufacturers and where they are. There are some pretty strong storylines coming emerging from there. Not all of them good. Adesse... Um, were I think initially due to run at Portimao they opted not to they do have a test coming um, pretty soon Um, they are still looking for a customer for that car I am not at the moment in a position where I can tell you exactly where that customer is going to come from but I wish them the best keep it locked to DSC because there's going to be some tasty P3 stories what I would say by the way is we are going to see an Adesse uh, chassis uh, though in the Michelin Le Mans Cup next year because the H24 car mm. uh, the um, hydrogen fuel car uh, is going to be running well, which H24 car there's two of them now ah uh, well yeah one homologated car but uh, that car will be running in the Michelin Le Mans Cup through next season that is an Adesse based car mm. uh, James Musker says over the Portimao weekend Graham you mentioned that the new generation of P3 cars will have a more powerful engine they will will this cause uh, problems when the P2s get slowed down for, for the introduction of car car will the two classes become too close in performance that's a question that a lot of people are asking without a shadow of a doubt and uh, very many of those people asking those questions are people that actually run LMP2 teams uh, we've got a broad indication of what the potential pace for the new P3 cars are going to be it's going to be significantly quicker than they currently are we don't yet know exactly what we're going to see in terms of ELMS and the wick being turned down on the current P2 cars. But yes, there is active concern that that might be an issue that begins to grow. It's certainly going to make an awful lot of the corners, an awful lot of the tracks, an awful lot more busy than they currently are. Mm. Andre Beck 10 says, What happened to some of the older ELMS teams like Bruce Motorsport and Murphy, Murphy Prototypes? They were around when I started watching, but I've not heard from them in a while. Well, Greaves Motorsport still around. In fact, some of their personnel uh, operates with a number of teams around the world. I mean, Jacob Greaves, for instance, and some of his closer colleagues, I think, are going to be out with the Asian Le Mans series again. They were part of the LMP2 AM background team that won the title with ARC Bratislava last year. But uh, Greaves, as a going concern, switched very, um, very particularly away from active motorsport 
uh, and into the engineering side. So if you look up and down the WEC pit lane or the LMS pit lane uh, nowadays, vast majority of the fueling rigs that you see are actually built by Greaves 3D Engineering. Lots more beside the little fuel Daleks that you see that are there to actually uh, manage the um, pumping fuel in and out of the cars when the cars aren't running. They're Greaves products. Lots of other kind of fabricated, uh, machined uh, tools and parts as well from Greaves. Uh, Greg Murphy, not heard a lot from Greg. Uh, the last time I was aware that he was running a car was actually the Masters Historic uh, race. The, the Orica Zero 3R ran at least one of those races and did pretty well. But I haven't heard much from Greg. Would love to hear from him if you're listening in, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> here's, a, here's a blast from the past. Last time I spoke to Greg Murphy, I was on the phone to him and he was testing the Arve Riley chassis. Was he really? There you go. Now that was a legendary car. No, wasn't it just? Car, <coughs> car singular. <laughs> Justin Truck 71 um, says, Graham, first... Uh, you can't answer let's wait and see <laughs> you have to bet your life savings on this WC season it's a simple bet does Toyota win every race this year yes or no remember you can't say you can't say let's wait and see yes but they're not going to be one two at every race mm. okay Okay, I'll say let's wait and see then. James Counter, is there any car company quite like Glickenhaus out there? The closest I can think of is M Sport, who do rally and uh, circuit circuit stuff. Congratulations to James for being honoured by the US Chamber of Commerce as an innovator of the year. Who's most comparable to Glickenhaus? He's a he's a innovator of the year. Say again, US Chamber of Commerce innovator of the year. Hmm. Uh, there's lots of innovators out there. They're not necessarily people with a badge on the front of the car. Uh, you, you need to look at some of the kind of the the engineering companies in the background. Um, yeah, I, I'll give you someone like Gibson, for instance, is a good example of somebody. True. A, a company. No, not him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but a good example of a company that's come up with a product that's there against a tender, um, and has produced something really pretty spectacular. It's fifty of those engines. It supplies by far the most successful near top class of prototypes we've seen in my memory and um, how many times have you seen a gibson engine fail very very if ever really i think i've seen one ever and that was a that was a i believe an assembly issue so i think the reality you know is look beyond the headlines look to the smaller companies look to the companies su- supplying kind of support services you remember, you know chris from the racing optics Mm, team. Yeah, that he's guy. in every single pit lane. He's he the Jim also, Hersey of optics. He is. He do, he he does. Um, uh, what, what Chris does is, amongst other things, he supplies pre-assembled screens for GT and uh, LMP cars with the tear-offs. So I've often seen him taking, you know, full windscreens from LMP one and LMP two cars under his arm back to the car to take back to the workshop to bring back to the team the next time because that's the windscreen they're going to use at insert name of massive race. Yeah, it is the small operators that have got these spectacular little businesses without which it could not happen. Mm. Sean Crockett says, thinking about the likelihood of fuel cell motive power being allowed in the WC in Le Mans in 2024 is it likely to be in the top class if so I'd expect this to cause the ACR a bit of a headache uh, uh, the last conversation I had with uh, with Pierre Fion was about this very point he says they are looking at these cars as soon as possible racing for an overall win that's it that's what they're looking to do and the, the level of manufacture they're dealing with it, it would be nothing else the progress is coming usually and 
when we were talking to the guys behind the H24 project, um, we were getting a bit of an idea of just how much it's, it's coming along, not just in things like developing the portable fuel station, but in the pace of it. That car is significantly quicker, the H24 car, than it was last year when we saw it at Spa, and they're expecting it to be at GT3 pace next year. And if it is at GT3 pace next year, that is four, five, six seconds a lap quicker. That is phenomenal. If it can go on a curve like that for an extended period of time, it won't be very long before we're seeing uh, a car um, with that sort of powertrain deliver that level of performance. It's that level of performance, and also they're also up in the ante in terms of how far it will go. So there's two things. One is the endurance of the, of the powertrain, and the other one, you're quite right, Stephen, is the, is the, is the, the overall performance. Mm. Tiger a 380, and we're moving into General. Are we now? Yes, we are. Um, he's asking about this McLaren GT3 video that surfaced oh, yeah. of it testing at Monza without the chicanes. It's gained a bit of traction because of the sound of the engine. I haven't watched this video um, because I've probably been lazy. Uh, you have, though. What can you tell us? I know everything about it. It's not a race car, is the straight answer. What you've got is a powertrain mule. It's clearly based on the 720S GT3. Uh, it is not a race car engine. It is for a very short run, high, very high performance uh, road to race car for the kind of... But oddly enough, we've had a, a question about things like an Aston Martin Vulcan. It's of that ilk. It's something that McLaren have actually been activating very well over the last uh, several years. This is another one. It will be a version of the 720S with a ridiculous amount of horsepower that is principally designed for the track. It's not hypercar. It's not a GT2 car. It's not an upgraded GT3 car. It's not a GTE car. It's not a race car. So it's not DPI 2.0? No. Okay. Just getting that, just clearing that up because somebody would ask. Um, Sean Crockett says, Who is the driver or any other team representative who's turned up for an interview in the worst condition possible following post race celebrations? This could include morning after interviews. Ooh. I know if a few journalists have turned up rough, but um, <laughs> to the press room um, on the day of the Spa Twenty Four Hours. No. <laughs> but yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, that's a very good point. Actually, <laughs> I, we can't talk about him because he's standing for election. Oh, I've given it away, Sam. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to say it. Sam Collins, without a shadow of a doubt. Sam Collins from uh, Race Car Engineering, as was now standing for Parliament in our coming election. And uh, good yeah. luck to him. Good luck to him. Good luck to the guy. Good luck to, to, to you, Sam. I hope you're listening in, but we are not going to embarrass you publicly. Uh, did turn up to the Spa 24 Hours absolutely hammered. Well, to be fair, the Spa 24 Hours, Graham. You need to would, be You would, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give one story, and I'm not going to name the driver because it wouldn't be fair. But I was at the ELMS finale at Portimao two years ago, and I was doing a little bit of work for a team in the background, and a Within half an hour of the race finishing, um, said driver, who had just won the ELMS title in his respective class, by the time I got to him, um, had had an entire bottle of vodka and was incomprehensible. (laughs) Yeah, we're not going to name that name. It it wouldn't be fair. No. Um, Dan Summersgill says, This is a general question. Uh, Graham, what did you think of the FIA Motorsport Games? Me personally, or hashtag me personally, it seems like a reasonable concept, but I think it needs a rethink on location. Uh, obviously, you were there at Vallelunga last weekend. You were in Rome, soaking it up, quite literally. literally. <laughs> what was it like? Um, 
weather was really unfortunate. It hammered it down all weekend. The format did indeed have a lot to kind of like. I think it does need some thought. You've got two bodies of opinion within the organising group between the FIA and SRO who, are, who have a longish term contract to do this. I know Stefan Rattel is gung ho, wants to expand, and many, many more disciplines rallying, rallycross, dragsters, truck racing, endurance racing. He's talking to the ACO, historic racing, he'd like to see added to it. My view of this is it does have potential to achieve some things. It is not and should not become something which is pro-based and is looking to go head-to-head with other big events. It provides a great opportunity for some of the smaller operations to come out, so there's some of the pro-am efforts, particularly from emerging motorsport markets. It was great to see. I think we had 50 or 51 nations represented. There were some of the um, the contest the the, uh, the the karting slalom was a little bit downbeat but you've got to find somewhere to come in with real grassroots particularly with youngsters and the boy girl bit there I think worked pretty well for them it was you know one uh, male contestant one female contestant from each participating country it needs some thoughts location is going to be interesting I think it's odds on we're going to see that Paul Ricard next if it gets the nod for next year there's then a question about whether or not it's every year every two years every four years I think edging towards every two years um, and then what the format might be and what you might do in the intervening years for something of a fill-in so I think it's got something I think there will be a long long list of wash-up questions as well as wash-out questions about yeah, Valonia. But uh, you can't judge an event by one lot of poor weather, particularly when it's an event that is going to be moving from place to place to place. It does give an opportunity. It should not and cannot become something that just becomes a money-making opportunity. Damien Peachman adds to this topic by saying, Marshall, that's me this week, and Graham, pick two things each that you'd both like to be added to the motorsport games. I'm going to do one serious and one ridiculous one. Shall we go first? Go for it. While you think about it. My serious one is, I think, something like Formula Student would be cool to be involved with that. If you had like a Formula Student race that was involved with some of the cars that they come up with, because they're there's some really cool stuff going yep. on with, and, and it's perfectly relevant as well yeah perfectly relevant it would be really good publicity for some of the university project students who do some incredible work in, in finding their feet in motorsport the ridiculous one is um, a bike race made entirely of people who have never raced a bike before <laughs> wouldn't that be great uh, maybe not <laughs> for me I think the addition of endurance racing is a good one it's pretty clearly aimed towards something like LMP3 I think is what you're looking at there that's the entry level if you like for the at the level at which I think it should be pitched at um, and the other one I think they're absolutely right rallying um, without a shadow of a doubt a special stage or a hill climb stage I think would be uh, a great addition to it um, it's got real potential to be an event that people follow um, you know, through live streaming, that requires investment without a shadow of a doubt. And God bless him, Stefan Rattel and his organisation have invested pretty heavily in that product. I'm keen to see what the what comes out from the uh, from the conversation after Valonia. The, the the proof of the pudding for me is going to be how deeply they've questioned themselves about what went well and what went badly. What did they spend money on that, frankly, they didn't need? There was a fair bit of that. What didn't they spend money on that they could have done? Um, you know, what? Uh, which of the disciplines 
proved to be a success. For instance, I think the F4 um, discipline there, difficult in terms of the timing because people on the F4 ladder are obviously on the way up and will be testing other cars. But the principle of actually having found Paul Lip, who's prepared to put in put his money where his mouth was and commit to a car that no one else has got experience of, so as none of those drivers came in with an advantage, uh, which will only be used for the first three years of the motorsport games and for no other events. That, to me, um, it's a big commitment from KCMG uh, to the motorsport games, but there was a bit of quiet genius behind that because those kids came in and no one had the upper hand. That, I thought, worked well. The uh, touring car race worked pretty well. TCR is a great formula for this. GT is a great uh, thing to have at these motorsport games, but driving standards were a bit iffy amongst one or two of them. And maybe, maybe what needs to actually happen with motorsport games as it progresses and you get more nations in is those qualifying races need to be make or break. If you ain't going to make the cut, you shouldn't be in it. Mm. It's as simple as that. So um, there's lots of good. There's some serious questions that need to be asked. For my money, my opinion is going to be developed for the future on the basis of how those questions are answered and what those answers are. Do you, do you, do you think it lacked something like full fat works teams, factory drivers, or do you think it should be no. an event that's based around up and comers? No, and, and absolutely, around? definitely should not be a pro event. There's plenty enough events in the world for the pros to, to actually push on with. Mm. Neil, oh, sorry, we've got a second question from Damien Peacher, and he says, outside of Macau, what would the best circuit be to host the GT World Cup meeting? Any circuit. Any circuit. I think it's a terrible place to hold it. Um, I, I, don't get me wrong, I like the Macau meeting. I, I like it for the Formula 3. I like it for touring cars. It is an awful place for GT3 race, particularly the current breed of GT3s, which are faster, bigger, uh, aero-dependent. It's a terrible place for a GT3 race. And I'll be blunt, I think the event, the GT event, is a joke. I... I, I that it's in the wrong place and it piggybacks an event because of the significance it's actually got. It's a unique track, it's a fabulous place uh, for motorsport. But Still it, relevant for F3, I think. Absolutely. Uh, I'd, I'd quite like to see the um, the FI uh, World Cup maybe held it as uh, part of the event at the Bathurst, 12 hours. That That's a driver's circuit if ever there was one. And let's face it, if it's going to be deemed a success to have 15, 16, 17 cars and most of the manufacturer based put a few more on the ship boys and let's have a separate race with the same form of cars it doesn't need to be the ones you bring into the 12 hours and let's see but that would be for me that'd be an ideal place to do it mm. we're going to go to fun and general oh, oh no sorry we're just going to go to fun because we've just done general uh, apologies um, Richard Cooper is going to start us off he says on which occasion do you think a racing driver has choked as badly as the England rugby team I have no idea what he's talking about Graham didn't we, we won the World Cup we won in the, World Cup, the summer, didn't we? didn't we? I think we did. We did. We won the World Cup. Oh, was that year. cricket? I know we're really, World Cup, we're really very good at sport. Yeah, I don't know World Cup. We're really good at sport. We are really good at we'll sport. Pu- we'll push on. That's a, that's a really good Motorsport Matty says, is there any hope of changes to the pit stop regulations for the Spa 24 hours in the near future? And this is the final question, Graham. so you can rant away. He says, there's plans to bring in, the plans to bring in time and pit stops at the Bathurst 12 hour were shelved after fan backlash. Hashtag me personally, I found the, found the Spa 24 hours a bit dull due to the lack of interesting pit strategy. I am not going to go through again my view of the Spa 24 hours. I will recommend... Oh, no, no, no. I will recommend that you listen to Stefan Patel's own response to those questions because I did pose them to him uh, during the Suzuka 10-hour uh, race earlier this year and actually um, 
that's the view that matters it's not my view that matters he's the guy whose event it is I thought he gave a very clear answer it helped me to understand why he's taking that view I don't agree with all of it but I agree with more of it than I did before um, have a listen to the interview with Stefan on the Marshall Pruitt podcast it was about six weeks ago something like that you'll find it on the uh, on the archive without a shadow of a doubt have a listen listen to what he's got to say about it then let me know what you think uh, that'll be it for this evening um, we're now knocking on for one o'clock in the morning here and we've we, got to be up at 2am yeah excellent <laughs> to get to the circuit we Woo! do again yeah but thanks to you Stephen for filling in uh, the remarkably large shoes of Marshall Pruitt um, thanks to all of you for sticking with uh, this crazy weekly thing we do thanks of course to uh, the Justice Brothers and to Cooper Tyres for their continued support for our efforts this has been the week in sports cars here in Shanghai uh, I've been Graham Goodwin good night